Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24 this morning. Luke chapter number 24. And I'd like to preach to you on what I believe is probably a very familiar passage to you. I don't think we're going to be preaching on anything that most people here would say this is the first time that I have ever read it or heard about it. Uh, And it's a story in the Word of God about two disciples and their journey from Jerusalem uh, to uh, a place called Emmaus. And as they journey, they're struggling with some things and they're grappling with some things and the Lord meets them on the road and begins to minister to them. Aren't you glad when the road gets weary and the road gets hard that the Lord meets with us and ministers to us? I tell you, there's been plenty of times when I was about ready to fall out of the way and He'd come along and just bolstered me up. He knew what I needed when I needed it. We need to be reminded He knows what we need and when we need it. And that's what this passage teaches us about this morning. Luke chapter number 24 And uh, the Word of God begins, verse number 13, the Bible says, And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about threescore furlongs. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. Now what they're talking about is the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holding that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have with one to another as ye walk and are sad? And the one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet mighty indeed, and word before God, and all the people. Can I pause there for just a moment and exhort you? Uh, isn't it interesting that he asks what things? Don't you think he as the Son of God knew what things were troubling him? What a reminder of prayer that is in our life. He don't, he don't ask us to pray because he needs to find out. He asks us to pray because we need to tell it. He already knew the answer. You say, preacher, why would I pray? He already knows. My, my heavenly Father already knoweth what I have need of. Yeah, but it ain't him that needs the praying. It's you that needs the praying. So he says, what things? And and they tell him, they said concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. Beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulchre. And when they found not his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it even so as the women had said, but him they saw not. Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. They drew nigh unto the village whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread, and blessed it, and brake, and gave to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us by the way, and while he opened us the Scriptures? And they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with him, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared 
to Simon and they told what things were done in the way and how he was known of them in breaking of bread. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this moment, Lord. Let us uh, be vigilant in this moment to seize it for your cause, for your calling and purpose, Lord, that you might receive glory. Let us not let this moment pass us by, but let us avail ourselves of this opportunity to hear from heaven, to let you deal and minister to our hearts, and Lord, that we might find ourselves closer to thee. Lord, we love you. I pray for those that are here this morning that you would work in their hearts and minds. I don't know what their heart's need is, but I know you can meet it. Lord, I don't know what their want is, but I know that you're all sufficient. So I pray that you'd minister to their heart, speak to their heart in a way that would be effectual and that would bring you glory. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. To understand the things that are transpiring in this passage, I think it's important to understand a little bit about the context. Maybe to try to put ourselves in the shoes of these two disciples. We don't know who the other one is. One is a man by the name of Cleopas. A lot of people have suspected, maybe rightly so, that it was his wife Mary who was traveling with him. But the Bible does not tell us who this other disciple is. But these people are followers of Jesus Christ. We don't know how long they had followed him, but we do know that he had made an indelible imprint upon their life. For as they travel back from Jerusalem to their home in Emmaus, their hearts are stirred, they're talking together, they're trying to puzzle out and figure out what has transpired in their lives over the past few days. I would imagine as they traveled that there was a lot of things swirling around in their mind and heart. The first thing I would say is, is it's apparent to me that their hearts were broken. Remember, they had lost their Lord and their Master. They had lost one that had been a friend to them greater than any other friend had been, one that was precious to them, one that had cared for them, one that had ministered to them. I mean, who they had lost was someone that was deeply, intimately involved with and precious to their life. And no doubt as they traveled, that just the mere grief that weighed upon them was enough to drive them to heartbreak. I would say their hearts were broken. But not only were their hearts broken, you imagine these two individuals, they've been following this Messiah, they believed what he said, they've, they've adhered to his teachings, but their entire faith and hope and future was hanged upon the nail of his word and his promise. And they even say it later on, they said, we had hoped that it had been he that would restore Israel. And now, what does all this mean? He's been taken and by wicked men with wicked hearts, he's been crucified. And now it's three days since. And, and what does this mean for their lives? Not only were their hearts broken, but I would say their hopes were dashed. Now they don't know what the future holds. Have you ever had a day, I'm sure that you have, where you woke up and you knew what the rest of your life was going to be. But before you pillowed your head that night, everything had been thrown into disarray. That's what these people were experiencing. They had a plan. They were going to follow their Messiah into the new kingdom and He was going to restore Israel. But now, all of a sudden, all that's changed. They don't know what to do except just go home and try to wait on God. Their hearts were broken. Their hopes were dashed. But don't you imagine, the Bible says they reasoned with each other. Reason is a good King James polite Bible word for arguing. It's what me and my wife do. We don't, we don't, we don't argue. We reason. Amen. I heard a preacher say one time, me and my wife don't, don't have, we don't have thoughts, we have moments of intense fellowship. Amen? They're reasoning together. What does that mean? They're debating. They're arguing. And you can imagine that Cleopas and whoever the other is, and, and it sure supports the fact that it might be his wife that they reason with each other, but, 
But as they're traveling, you can imagine one says, well, well, maybe we just misunderstood the things that he taught. And the other says, no, I, I don't believe that's it. He said clearly that he was going to uh, to uh, die and rise again. And the other said, well, I know that, but it's been three days and, and he's not back yet. And the other said, well, maybe we misunderstood what he meant about dying and about death and, and back and forth they're going. And, and they're just trying to untangle this thread of what has happened. We could say it this way, their hearts were broken. They had lost this Savior that they loved so dearly. Their hopes were dashed. They didn't know what this meant for the future. Their life had been thrown in disarray. And undoubtedly, their heads were spinning. They couldn't make sense of what was going on. They couldn't figure out what all of this meant for them. It is in that situation that our Lord comes and meets them. Can I can I just say, And there, you know, sometimes I got a whole sermon and then I start reading my text and I get a whole other sermon. Can I just say what an amazing thing it is that as their hearts are broken, they're burdened, they're weighing heavy because the Lord is nowhere to be found. He's right there with them. Doesn't that tell us in our life we can get in a situation where we feel like God ain't nowhere to be found and He's walking down the road right beside us? Aren't there times in our life where we don't understand what God is doing, but He knows what He is doing? And we don't understand. We didn't choose this path for us, but... But here we are, and guess what? He must have chosen because He knew where to find us, and He's walking that path right there beside us. The Lord comes and meets them. They don't recognize Him. And you say, preacher, why is that? Well, the Bible says their eyes were holding from it. God didn't want them to know Him. And sometimes in our life, there'll be times that we look for Him and God won't let us see Him. And the reason is because we walk by faith and not by sight. There's going to be times it's not going to be apparent to you what God is doing in your life. And so He's walking with them and they begin to speak one with another. And there are three phases, really, to what transpires here. He, he appears to them, he, he approaches them on the road, and he begins to ask them what they're talking about. And, and they, it almost spills out of their mouths. I mean, it's this long, just sort of run-on thought that they're giving about how heartbroken that they are. Then the Lord replies back, and some of it seems to be severe words, but we'll find that they're gracious words, really. And he tells them the things that they need to know to go a little further on the journey. And then there's a final scene where they are gathered in the house together and they are breaking bread in fellowship. What do these three scenes teach us? Notice the first scene with me. And I would, I would title it this way. We see their dire condition. What kind of shape are they in? Verse number 17, the Bible says that he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another as you walk? Notice this next phrase and are sad. The one of them whose name was Cleopas answering said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? Let me say number one, we see that they were disheartened. Their hearts had been shattered by the things they were experiencing. These are not people that have been buoyed through their faith, through these trials and through these tribulations, but these are people that feel like they are paddling, trying to tread water and slowly losing the fight. You know, sometimes in our lives, we're going to find ourselves in less than ideal spiritual situation. I wish I could tell you that every day you wake up, you're going to feel ready to take on hell with a water pistol. But if I'm to be frank with you this morning, there's going to be a lot of days that you're going to wake up and you're going to feel like you are gasping for spiritual breath. That's the situation that they find themselves in. But something that I noticed here that I just want to mention, I'll move on. The Lord Jesus asks them, why are you sad? And they answer back an interesting thing. They say, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem and dost not know the things which have come to pass there in these days? 
You know, sometimes we'll come into a problem, we'll come into a storm that is so big in our world it looks like it blocks the sun out. But can I remind you that no matter how hard it's raining where you are, the sun is shining somewhere. Sometimes we'll, we'll, we'll struggle with things that are so big that they just uh, take over our world. They, they fill up every void. And I don't know if you've ever experienced it. I'm sure that you have. I've experienced it where everything you do, all you can do is think about this problem and think about this situation and think about this struggle. You, you, you go to eat and you have no appetite. You go to sleep and you toss and you turn and, and your whole world is consumed by this. You say, preacher, what's happening? Your heart's heavy with something. But when the Lord shows up, He says, why are you sad? In other words, to their mind, they had no reason to be happy. But to the Lord's mind, they had no reason to be sad. You know, in our lives, there can be that vast of a chasm between our experience and our possibility. It can be that we allow things to so conquer and consume our world that we can't even fathom that the world exists somewhere without it. But can I remind you, only a few short days, weeks, months, whatever it might have been ago, you weren't facing this. And the things that you're facing, listen, as one wise man said, they didn't come to stay, they came to pass. They're not going to be there in your life forever. You know, the great danger is we give up on an eternal God over temporal problems. A God that is constant, we give up on over things that are fleeting and changing all the time. Can I remind you, God's as good in the middle of your storm as He was when the sun was shining. And you look at it and say, well, preacher, look at all these dark clouds. But remember where he sits, he's above the cloud. You say, well, preacher, that's good for him. But don't forget the book of Ephesians says we're seated together with him in heavenly places. It means this. We can either choose to look up and see clouds or we can choose to look up and see him, one of the two. I would say this, they were disheartened. But notice what verse 19 says. They say, how do you not know what has transpired? Are you a stranger in Jerusalem? How have you not seen these things? And he said unto them, verse 19, what things? And they said unto him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. Let me say, not only were they disheartened, but they were disoriented. They couldn't make sense out of the things that had just transpired. They were confused, number one, about His divinity. Notice what they say about Him. Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet. They knew that He was sent from God before, but now all of a sudden, they can't understand what's happened. Sometimes your problems, as they intrude into your life, will begin to make you question if God really is all that He says He is. And you won't say it by saying, well, God isn't God. But here's what you'll do. You'll say things like this. If He's God, then why did this happen? If He's God, then how could this transpire? And I would say this, that though it is easy to be critical of these two disciples, it is not an unreasonable question to ask in the midst of such a situation as theirs. If He is who He said He is, then how could the things that have happened have happened unto Him? Oh, they probably, if you had asked them, do you believe that he was a prophet? It's apparent that they say he was a prophet. They don't say we thought he was a prophet. They say he was a prophet. They knew, but what they knew was not gin and harm with what they were experiencing. And sometimes in those situations in life, in fact, invariably in those situations in life, we're putting a choice where we have to choose whether to believe what we're experiencing or believe what God has said. They were confused about His divinity. They were confused about His deeds. 
They said he's mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. I'll tell you, for me personally, had I been sitting there at the cross, had I been in the shoes of men like John and and Peter, had I been witnessing, had I been uh, experiencing what Mary, the the mother, the earthly mother of our Lord, experienced, my question would have been this. Why are you letting them do this to you? Why don't you come down off that cross? I, I hope I wouldn't have said it with the disdain that many that mocked him would, but it's a legitimate question. If he is God, why are you letting him do this to you? They probably were wondering. He, he, he performed all these miracles. He raised the dead. He opened blinded eyes. We know He did that. We saw Him do that. So how could His life end so tragically and so shamefully as to be nailed to a cross? You know, we ask the same questions, but we don't ask them in the same way. We'll ask questions like this. Why, God, if you're God, are you allowing evil men to do the things that they're doing? Let me tell you something. We're we're entering a season in human history here in the West where we're going to -to face-to-face experience the evil of wicked men. It's not going to be like it has been. It's not going to be abstract. It's not going to be, it's not going to be subjective. It's not going to be somewhere, some often in some history book, some men did this to somebody and it ain't got nothing to do with me. We're going to be facing wicked and evil in our generation. And as we ready ourselves for those days, there's going to be times, and and probably you even now ask yourself, Lord, if you're in control of everything, why are you allowing wicked men to prey on God's people? Why are you allowing this to happen? We know that God has the power to affect change in everything. We know that God has the power to immediately change every situation. And in your life personally, you're going to sometimes, in your heart, you're going to look at God and say, God, if you're strong enough to change this, and I'm begging you to change it. I'm pleading with you to change it. And I know you love me. Why aren't you changing this in my life? I promise you that most of the people in this room have prayed that way. Uh, probably if you've prayed at all, you've prayed that way at some time or another. you prayed for a lost loved one. you begged God to save them and wondered why God is not stirring their heart. you probably prayed over a, over a health problem that you knew that it's no effort for God to just reach out and touch and change. And you wondered... Why isn't God doing that? They're experiencing confusion about His divinity and His deeds. But then look at verse 20. It says this, And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered Him to be condemned to death and have crucified Him. They're confused over His death. They're saying this, How could it end this way? Now it's remarkable, as our Lord gets closer to Calvary in His earthly ministry, He talks more about it. And that, of course, is in keeping. Isaiah prophesied that He would set His face like a flint towards Jerusalem. And that's exactly what He did. And in the latter days, in, in the late days of His earthly ministry, He talked continuously about how He was going to be crucified and died and buried and rise again the third day. But now that it's actually happened, they're struggling with it. Can I tell you, there's a lot of things that we love it when it happens in other people's lives. But it's different when it happens in ours. We love it in a good testimony service for some sweet saint to get up and start testifying of the hard things they've experienced with the goodness of God and the richness of God. We'll talk about how we'll listen to somebody give testimony about how God touched them and healed them. We'll we'll listen to them give testimony about how God mended their marriage, about how God rescued their kids, about how God worked in their life. And we love it, man. I love it. I rejoice. But then all of a sudden when it happens in our life, it's a different matter. All of a sudden now... We're having to experience the pain along with the praise, and it's a whole different experience for us. They had heard him say all these things. They knew these things were supposed to happen, 
So what were they struggling to rationalize it, to reconcile it with? It was not with their faith, because their faith was planted and based upon what he had said. It was their flesh that was struggling with what they were experiencing. Can I tell you, your flesh is going to hate everything God does. It cannot be subject. The natural man is not subject to the law of God. It cannot be. There's not a single thing God will do in your life that your flesh will be happy about. Everything God does in your life is going to be a burden to your flesh. And by flesh, I mean the old man, that natural man, that part of you that doesn't know God or love God. If you're lost, that's the only part of you. You, God, is the part of you that don't know God. When you got born again, your spirit became awakened. God indwelled you through the Holy Spirit. And the Bible uses the word quicken. It means to resurrect or be made alive. He quickened the new man, the inner man within you. And that part of you loves what God's doing in your life. He's renewed day by day. He's strengthened with all might, as we read in the book of Ephesians. But that old man, he hates what God's doing. And for them, they were struggling because they, they knew that this was supposed to happen. But now all of a sudden, what they knew and what they felt did not agree with one another. I would say this, they were disheartened, they were disoriented, and that had led them into a condition of disbelief. Look at verse 21. They said this, but we trusted. You notice the past tense usage of the term? We trusted. We used to trust. We had trusted. We trusted that it had been He which should have redeemed Israel. They say this, and beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Now, there's two reasons that's significant. In Jewish culture, the uh, the the concept of death, and, and this I think is one of the ways that they reconciled God raising people from the dead in the Old Testament. It's foolish. It's uh, unnecessary. But, but they had this belief that the spirit of man sort of, sort of lingered around the body for a few days afterwards. And that's part of the reason that whenever, uh, Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus, that Lazarus' sister says it's, it's been four days. She's not saying, I mean, listen to the Lord. It don't matter if it's four or forty or four hundred. But to her, she was saying it's past the time when you can just recall him. Well, the Lord wasn't getting ready to recall him. He was getting ready to resurrect him. Amen. There's a difference, right? doctor might recall you, but only the Lord can resurrect you. And, and, and so it didn't matter to the Lord, but that's part of the reason they're saying this. But there's another reason they're saying They're saying it because they're saying it's the third day. He said He was going to rise on the third day, and here we are, and He's not risen. Now the fascinating thing is they're saying it to Him, the risen Lord. Oh my soul. I, I wonder how many times I have foolishly charged God over things that He has already done. God, you didn't do this. And meanwhile, he's, he's done it. You didn't answer, and he has answered. You haven't changed this, and he had changed it. It's just old foolish, slow-witted me hadn't caught up to it yet. Here they are charging, saying, the Lord has not kept his word. And yet the proof of his word was right in front of them, and they could not see it. They were disbelieving. They Notice this, they doubted his plan. Number one, we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. What they're saying is we thought God was going to do A and He did B. We thought God was going to go here and He went there. We thought He was going to zig and He zagged. And we can't understand what God's doing. It looks like the plan of God has failed. Uh, can I tell you that by, by nature, or how to say this, the very nature of the plan of God in our lives is such that it will more often than not look like it has failed. It, it is predicated on the concept of faith. God, by His very name, His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. They're higher than our thoughts. When things look like they fell apart, 
hey, I was going to name that message that. By the way, the title of the message is When Things Fall Apart, all right? Just jot that somewhere up near the top of your notes. <laughs> when things fall apart and you say, oh, my soul, what's happened? Nothing's happened except what God wanted, desired, and planned to happen. The thing that should make us nervous is not when it goes wrong. It's when it goes so right that we don't need God in the midst of it. Because when it does, He's probably not in the midst of it. In your life, often things that God has set your course upon, more often than not, will look as though they have failed. That's not the case. God is the type, hey, listen, there's babies born every single day of the year, uh, but only God can raise the dead. Imagine what it felt like for Mary and Martha. I mean, would it have been any grand thing for a child to have been born? No, but a man had to die so that God could raise him from the dead. The plan of God could not be carried out without that devastation. And in our lives, often those things have to transpire if God is going to work in our life. Often things have to fall apart if we want Him to put them back together. I would say this, they, they, they looked at His plan and said, it's all failed, it's all fell apart, it's all, it's, all, it's all gone wrong. We trusted it had been He which should have redeemed Israel. What they initially trusted in was right, but from where they stood, they couldn't see it. Not only that, they doubted His power. They said, beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. It's too late. He can't do it. It's over. It's finished. Now, you'll never convince me that these two individuals were not aware of the miracle God had performed in, in, in Lazarus's uh, life. And, and not only him, but there were other occasions when our Lord raised the dead. And then undoubtedly there were a, a, a whole multitude, a plethora of instances that aren't even recorded in the Word of God. John says if everything was recorded, the world wouldn't contain the books thereof. They had no shortage of proof that he had the power to change their situation. But now all of a sudden, in the light of their heartbreak, they're starting to doubt things that they already knew in the brightness of daylight. Very often in our lives, this will happen. Well, things we know, we know them in a church service. We know them in a testimony service. We know them in our Bible study time. But then when the clouds gather up and the rain begins to fall and the wind begins to blow, things that we knew, all of a sudden we begin to doubt they started to doubt his power. But not only that, they also started to doubt his people. Look at verse number 22. This is interesting. They said, Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. And when they found not his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it even so as the women had said. Now this all sounds good. Look at this last phrase. But him they saw not. In other words, they're saying, now we've heard news that he could be rose from the dead. And we had some people come to us and tell us the tomb was empty. And they even said they had seen him, but they didn't actually see him. They don't have any actual proof. You know, our flesh must discredit the testimony of others to keep us in the bondage of disbelief. That's the reason that, that praise is a powerful thing in the life of believers. Over and over again, I mean, the book of Psalms is, it, it, it is largely comprised of testimonies of what God has done in Israel throughout their history. Uh, the, the majority of the time when they was praying and praising God, when they were singing, when that temple choir was singing, they were singing about what God had done in the past. Why is that so fundamental to the Christian experience? Because it afflicts, persecutes, and muzzles the flesh. The flesh, if it can, will try to convince you that God ain't never done anything in your life. And the worst thing that can happen for the flesh is to hear other people talk about God's power and God's ability. By the way, let me just say this. That's why you need church. That's 
why you need church. I know we say all the time, and I'm not being cynical, I've said this too, but we'll be riding, you know, in the car and listening to gospel music or or riding in the car and praying and and, and we'll start to rejoice and we'll say, boy, I had church. Listen, I understand what you mean. I say that too. I understand the point is taken of what we're saying. But can I say this? That ain't church. You know why it ain't church? Because churches where two or three are gathered together in my name. There will I be. That means he ain't included in the two or the three. He's the one that shows up where the two or three are gathered together. Hey, you say, preacher, you're being critical. You're saying folks can't get happy in the car. No, get happy in the car. Don't wreck, but get happy in the car. God bless your soul. You have, I mean, listen, you, you enjoy the Lord. I'm not being critical, but I'm saying one of the fundamental components to church is the testimonies of God's people. Why is that so important? Why is that so paramount? Because if the flesh is going to put us in bondage of unbelief, it can only do so by silencing the voice of others in our life. We may quit praising Him, but as long as others won't quit praising Him, our flesh can't keep Him quiet. (laughs) I I see they they doubted us, but they said, well, they say they saw. This is astonishing the lengths to which the flesh will go to, to to put us in bondage. I mean, think about this. Well, He said He was going to rise from the dead on the third day, and it is the third day. And the tomb is empty. And some people said they've seen him. And there was an angel. But I'm just not convinced. I mean, you know, what more proof could you have, right? What, him show up on the road and start walking beside you? I'm saying this this morning. Very often, our cynicism towards God's working in other people's lives. And I'm not talking about things that are rankly unscriptural. I mean, we weigh everything against the Word of God. If there's no precedent for it, I don't care what somebody says they've experienced. If there ain't Bible for it, then you take it with a whole salt shaker, all right? But I am saying that one of the reasons it's so paramount, fundamental, that we hear those testimonies is it afflicts the flesh. They could only doubt Him when they dismissed the testimony of God's people. So they were disbelieving. And what does the Lord do in response to this? Notice verse 25. We see not only their dire condition, but we see their divine confrontation. So the Lord finally begins to speak. And what does He say when He does? You know, often in our struggles we'll say, I just wish I could hear from the Lord. Are you sure? Are you sure? What would He say to you? Well, notice what He says to them. Verse 25, Then He said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? Beginning at Moses... (laughs) All the prophets he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All three of these verses regard to the uh, and deal with the faith of these individuals. And notice what he does in trying to jumpstart, trying to to sort of electrocharge and and awaken their faith. He does three things. Notice number one, he chides their faith. He says, "O fools and slow of heart, believe all the things which the prophets have spoken." Now that sounds rough. That sounds harsh, but you know why? We're too used to taking insult. If you stop and consider the actual words he uses, he's not being unkind at all. He's being honest. He's saying this, it is foolish to choose your flesh over your faith. It is foolish to take the witness of your mind over the word of God. God has spoken, saying that His Son would be crucified and rise again the third day. And now that it's actually transpired, you've made the choice of who to believe. And you have chosen wrong. We give ourselves a lot of slack, don't we? We'll say, well, I'm just struggling. Well, I'm just having a hard time. Well, I just got questions. And while certainly God knows our frame that it's but dust, 
We ought to recognize exactly what it is when we yield to our flesh. We're saying, I believe myself over the Scripture. I believe my fears over God's faithfulness. I believe the flesh over leaning upon faith. He says, you've made a foolish decision. You could have chosen to trust God, but instead you trusted your own fears. And then he says they were slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. God had not been without a witness about this thing. God had spoken to them. God had dealt with them. God had not left them in the dark. He had told them these things would happen. But the problem, just like Jonah of old, who was slow to believe and slow to obey, is they were reluctant to trust God. You know why? It's not that new man that's reluctant. He's eager to trust God. But it's that old man because he can't be subject to the law of God. He doesn't want to trust God. And because he doesn't want to trust God, he slows us down in our obedience to him. He chides their faith. Then notice verse 25 or 26. He says, Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? This is what we call a rhetorical question. Christ is not expecting an answer. They know the answer. He knows the answer. But he's wanting them to consider what he said. He asks them this, and in doing so, he challenges their faith. So, preacher, what do you mean? Well, he's saying this. You've got a better way? You've got a better way? You think he shouldn't have suffered? You think he shouldn't have died? You think he shouldn't have entered into his glory? If you've got a better way of securing salvation for all of humanity, let's hear it, Bob. I want to know what your plan is. He's challenging their faith. He's saying, you're not doubting him because he's failed. You're doubting him because you're fearful. It's not that he has let you down. It's that you are uncomfortable with how he is keeping his promise. Our faith needs to be challenged. We need to be reminded who God is. We need to be reminded that his ways are perfect. We need to be reminded that the judge of all the earth will always do right. We need to be reminded that just because we are fearful does not mean he has quit being faithful. He challenges their faith, and then he charges their faith. Verse 27, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. He says, Do you believe there's a better way? When they just look at him like they're dumb because they were being dumb. He says, All right, let me tell you exactly why God did it this way. And he starts at Moses. He starts at the law and goes through the prophets. And he begins to pick up these beautiful woven threads of the Messiah and God's plan and God's providence and God's redemptive structure and idea and process. And he says, I want to show you exactly why what has happened is not a failure on God's part. In other words, you say, preacher, what do I need when I'm struggling? I'll tell you what you need. You need this book. We, when we struggle, want to set the book aside. But when we struggle, we need to hold it close. You don't need to get away from him. You need to get closer to him. You don't need to debate it. You need to read it. And as you read it, God will minister its truth to your heart and life. I see the, their divine confrontation. Then notice their dramatic conversion. Now, by conversion, I don't mean they got saved, but I mean what a change happened in their life. What were the things that they had to do? Well, notice verse 28. There were three things that had to take place. And as they drew nigh unto the village, whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. Let me say, number one, they had to seek his presence to get the help they needed. Now, here's something interesting to me. They still don't know who he is. All they know is that he's somebody that knows the Word of God. 
They don't know He's the Messiah yet. They don't know He's the Savior. Their eyes still are, are blinded to that. They just think He's some person that knows the Word of God. So here's what they had to do. Often, we want His presence without His precepts. We want His fellowship without His Word. But you know how you get His presence? Through His precepts. They still didn't know who He was, but they looked at each other and said, Hey, this fellow knows the Word of God. We need what he has to say. We need the truth of it. We need the wisdom of it. We need him to come home and instruct us and teach us. We want Here's what we want God to do. We want him to breathe good feelings all over us when we're discouraged. But you know, that's often not what happens. Instead, he points to his Word. He says, get in the book and you'll find the help that you need. They had to seek His presence. They had to desire. He would have gone further. Well, He wouldn't have gone further. But He made as though He would have gone further. I love that, don't you? He pretended like He He, he fainted them. He, he pretended He was going to go further. Why did He do that? Because He needed them to know that they needed Him. And often in our lives, we begin to grow discouraged and doubt the Lord because we forget how desperately that we need Him. And He allows this pressure in our life to drive us back to that hungry need of Him. They had to seek His presence. And then the Bible says in verse 30, it came to pass as He sat at meat with them, He took bread and blessed it and brake and gave to them. And their eyes were opened and they knew Him and He vanished out of their sight. Now, the Bible does not tell us whether they arrived at Emmaus, but given the short distance of the journey and what has transpired, I don't know how long it would take Jesus to preach a sermon from the law to the prophets, probably less time than it takes me. But however long it took, I think we can reasonably assume they had made it home. Now, custom in the East was that if you were the homeowner, I guess it's still custom here, uh, if somebody came over for dinner, your role and responsibility was to serve them. You would break the bread and bless it and administer the food to them, family style. You'd pass them taters around. But notice what happens when our Lord comes in. He sits down at the head of the table. He takes the bread and blesses it and breaks it. And he begins to pass it around. So, preacher, what did they have to do? Well, number one, they had to seek his presence. Number two, they had to surrender their position to him. They had to let him sit at the head of the table. You know, part of the reason we don't have fellowship with the Lord is we won't get up and give him his seat back. We want to have control. We want to have our hands on the wheel. We want to run things. And he says, as soon as you're ready to get up and let me have my seat back, I'll sit down and we'll eat. Sad truth of most Christians today is we'd rather sit in his seat and go hungry than sit in our own seat and be fed. We'd rather have control over our own life and not get the help we need than give up control to him and let him take control and minister to our lives. They had to surrender their position. By the way, once they did that, he showed them who he was. You know why often he won't let us see who he is? Because if we saw who he was, we'd still try to take control away from him. Once we're willing to surrender our heart to him, then he can speak with us face to face. Then he can make his work known in our life. But often if we knew it was God working in our life, we'd try to wrestle control back away from him. There's nobody that a Christian trusts less with their life than God. We'll trust the world with our lives. We'll trust the school system with our lives. We'll trust the government with our lives. We'll trust the doctor with our lives. But we won't trust God with our lives. Why is that? What is so broken in that concept and in that process? Why are we that way? Well, listen, if we will surrender ourselves to Him, then He'll make Himself known. They had to surrender their position. Then finally, and I'm done, look at verse 32. 
says, and they said one to another, did did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened us the scriptures? And they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them saying, the Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. They said, and not only that, (laughs) you know what else? They told what things were done in the way and how he was known of them in breaking of bread. I can see that humorous scenario. Them sitting around and Peter saying, oh boy, have I got news for you. You'll never believe it. The Lord's risen. And them saying, yeah, we should eat lunch with him. Where you been, Peter? By the way, he said hi and you ought to meet him in Galilee. <laughs> you know they had to do? They wanted the help they needed. They had to seek his presence. Can I tell you something? I'll just, I'm going to break it down real simple. You're going through this hard time. You're struggling. You feel like God's a million miles away. What do I need to do, preacher? You need to come to him and seek him. Uh, that that means, and listen, it ain't about being on a physical altar. It's it's about the altar of our heart. But a physical altar ain't a bad place to pray either. And it's about coming to God, seeking Him. You've got to quit playing hard to get. He's already got you. You need to go to Him. Go to Him. They had to seek His presence. They had to surrender their position. Uh, listen, you're you're going to be nothing but but nerves and anxiety. You're going to be wound tighter than an eight day clock till you realize God's got control of this and you can trust Him with it. Put it in His hands. Let him be God. He's better at it than you. And then you know what they had to do? They had to start singing his praises. I I see there was, and this is just the good grace of God. When they got themselves in a right condition, there was a witness in their heart. They said, did not our heart burn within us? It's fake, by the way. They said, you know, I noticed God stirring in my soul. But they didn't confine it to that inward witness. There was an outward witness too. First thing they did was run and find somebody and tell them how good God is. Listen, you need to hear praise in the midst of your storms and you need to give praise in the midst of your storms. There's somebody else sitting by and the clouds are starting to gather. They've heard the first clap of thunder and they need to hear that God will be with them in the middle of the storm. And they need to hear back from somebody in the midst of it and, and, and hear that God is faithful in the midst of all of it. You say, preacher, what about when things fall apart in my life? Well, best thing you can do is run to the Lord. Let Him be God. Surrender your life and heart to Him and go ahead and start praising Him and you'll find the strength and help that you need in those times. Let's bow together this morning as the musician comes, the altar's open. You're invited to come right now. You don't have to wait for a note to be played. If God's been dealing with your heart this morning, in fact, it'd be better for you to go ahead and just slip out. Get down here before the flesh bullies you into not going.